Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, has been barred from office for eight years after dealing with an election in a very Donald Trump kind of way. We ask why Mr. Bolsonaro's situation is so different and what will happen to his brand of populism. And the biggest beer in America is Mexican. For decades, it was a Budweiser brand. Now it's Modelo. The dethroning of the king of beers is a story of culture wars and savvy marketing and perhaps of a closer affinity between Mexico and America. First up, though. Another night of violence in the West Bank as Israeli troops, backed by drones and armored bulldozers, continued an assault in the city of Jenin. Some 3,000 Palestinians have fled what's referred to as a refugee camp in the city. But it's not tents and lean-tos. It's a city neighborhood that thousands of Palestinians ended up in in the 1950s, expelled from their homes in the aftermath of war in 1948. The war that started the Israeli-Palestine conflict that still smolders and flares. Fighting began in the early hours of Monday morning. Thousands of Israeli soldiers had entered the city, supported by drones. Israel's government said it was targeting the command center of a local militant group. Palestinian officials say that 10 Palestinians have been killed in the strikes and gun battles. At least nine are confirmed to be militants. Many more have been injured. It's like World War III, says this Palestinian man. He accuses Israeli soldiers of attacking unarmed people. History repeats itself in this conflict, or rhymes anyway. In 2002, Israeli forces staged a brutal battle in Jenin, saying it was a breeding ground, a base for terrorist operations. Again, that appears to be true. But the Palestinian leadership is very different these days, as are the militants that Israeli forces had been targeting in Jenin for months before this much more aggressive campaign. So I just got back from the outskirts of Jenin. I didn't manage to get in because of Israeli roadblocks. Obviously try again later today and later in the week. Anshul Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent. We're in the second day of the largest Israeli military operation in the West Bank in over 20 years. It's happened partly because the Palestinian Authority, which is in charge of security in Jenin, has more or less abandoned parts of the city, especially 
the neighborhood called the refugee camp. And it's become a hub of militant activity. The Israeli forces went in after realizing there's quite a significant military capability there that they want to take out. So was the military action obvious from what you could see on the outskirts? On the one hand, it's very clear that there is a major military operation going on there. You can hear drones in the air, you can see smoke coming up from parts of Jenin. At the same time, there is the fact that thousands of Palestinian workers are still leaving the city in the morning to go to their day jobs within Israel. And since I reported the infamous Battle of Jenin in 2002, this is a much smaller event. You don't see the same scale of armoured columns of the Israeli military going in and out of the city as you saw then. This is quite obviously an operation with a much lighter footprint. So tell us about the bit that's called the refugee camp. Jenin is the northernmost Palestinian city in the West Bank, and it's rather isolated from the west of the West Bank. It's not near many other towns or villages. There's no Israeli settlements close by either. And the isolation has in the past and also today contributed to it being often a hub of militant, from the Israeli perspective, terror activity. And because of the very crowded area, which is the refugee camp, it's always been a place where Israeli forces have had difficulty operating. But why is it that Israeli forces have felt the need to operate now? So in the last couple of years, a new local organization called the Janine Brigades, which is not affiliated with any of the main Palestinian movements with Fatah or Hamas or Islamic Jihad, but it's it's mainly a certain age group of young militants working together, sharing arms, sharing explosive workshops, and also carrying out attacks on Israeli settlements and Israeli army, and also some attacks within Israel. There was an attack coming from Jenin last year in the main entertainment area of Tel Aviv as well, which killed three people. So it's become this new type of Palestinian militant activity, which is, according to the Israeli intelligence, much more difficult for them to track and eliminate because it's not part of the established networks. So in a sense, Israeli authorities felt that they had to do something about the growth of that group. Well, there's a combination here of military necessity from from the perspective of, of the Israeli army. They've been carrying out raids on an almost nightly basis for over a year now in and around Jenin. But these have been of much smaller scale special forces going in for a couple of hours trying to arrest various militants. The scale that we see now over the last day and a half of over brigade strength backed up by a very significant presence of armed drones in the skies over Jenin. This is something that we haven't seen in Jenin basically since 2002 during the Second Intifada when Israel sent entire divisions of soldiers and tanks into the Palestinian cities in the West Bank. What we've seen since the Second Intifada in the Palestinian cities has been mainly the Palestinian Authority security forces more or less keeping the peace with occasional raids by the Israeli military. What has happened in Jenin now is that the Palestinian Authority, at least on the security side, is is no longer present there. And that's why Israel has now gone in. 
But the Israeli military has, has been present within the West Bank for all of these years, including in Jenin. Since 1967, when Israel captured the West Bank from Jordan, the whole area has been under overall Israeli military occupation. From uh, the Oslo process 30 years ago, in cities like Jenin, there's been a semi-autonomous presence of the Palestinian Authority. And this was supposed to be some kind of a temporary situation in the diplomatic process on the way to a two-state solution. That solution right now looks more distant than ever. And there's a young generation of Palestinians who are both disillusioned with the Palestinian Authority, which is seen by them as corrupt and certainly not the democratic government, and with the overall Israeli occupation. Why has there been this shift in the perception of what power that the Palestinian Authority has or the, the degree to which it represents the will and the desires of the Palestinian people? I think there's a feeling amongst young Palestinians that the Palestinian Authority hasn't delivered on anything meaningful as far as they're concerned. There is no movement towards any type of a political resolution. There's no horizon of any kind, and I think that they see the Palestinian Authority as this group of old men who have this stranglehold on power in very limited areas. So as far as they're concerned, they're getting nothing out of the Palestinian Authority, and they see it to a large degree as just being collaborators with Israel. And that, in turn, breeds the discontent that ends up with people joining militant groups. It's not just the fact that people are joining militant groups. It's the fact that what we're seeing in Jenin and also in Nablus, that they're organizing themselves. They're not relying on the Palestinian Authority. They're not relying on the main movements which are in opposition to the to the Palestinian Authority, like Hamas and Islamic Jihad. They're doing their own thing, and their own thing right now is to store arms and to carry out their attacks against Israel on their own initiative, because they don't see any other alternative right now. And we've talked on the show before about the exceedingly right-wing government that Israel now has. Is there a link here to your mind to that fact? The previous Israeli government under Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett was already dealing with this and the Israeli army, the, the policy was to go in on these small nightly raids. And this has remained until very recently the policy. What has changed is that the new Netanyahu government now in power for six months has a very significant far-right element in it which represents the, the Israeli settlers in the West Bank who have been clamoring for a much larger military operation. This pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu increased two weeks ago after an attack next to a settlement where four Israelis were killed. The attack itself wasn't carried out by perpetrators from Jenin, but this just increased the pressure on Netanyahu to do something, to, to be seen as doing something against the Palestinian organizations. So with that in mind, how long do you think this incursion into Janine will last? How, how deep will it go? Netanyahu, mainly for political purposes, is trying to present this operation, I think, as something bigger than it really is. He says that he, this will carry on for as long as necessary, but we're hearing both from within his own government and from the Israeli military that this is an operation which actually should end pretty soon. But Netanyahu, for his purposes, wants this to to be seen as something very big that he's ordered, and he hopes that this will, to some degree, satisfy the far right. Anshul, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Jason. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. If a week is a long time in politics, then eight years is like an eternity. Last week, Brazil's highest electoral court barred the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, from holding public office until 2030. A majority of the justices found he had abused his powers and misused state media. Mr. Bolsonaro denies wrongdoing and says he will appeal, and that adherence to his bolsonarismo aren't going away. Mr. Bolsonaro takes pride in being referred to as the Trump of the tropics, and during his presidency, he showed little respect for democracy. But while Mr. Trump has retained his grip on America's Republican Party, the right in Brazil has a cleaner chance to move on from its populist past leader. So on the surface, this ruling has put an end to Bolsonaro's political career. Ana Lankas is The Economist's Latin America correspondent. And it's been somewhat surprising that he hasn't kicked up more of a fuss. He was sulking in Florida for several months after losing the election. He came back to Brazil in March, and he's been fairly quiet since then. And so when the electoral court announced Bolsonaro's ban, few supporters actually turned out to protest. But that doesn't mean his influence on Brazilian politics is about to go away. Well, let's wind back a little bit. What did Mr. Bolsonaro do that that landed him in this mess? So last July, just three months before Brazil's presidential election, he invited dozens of foreign diplomats to the presidential palace and he showed them a slideshow presentation in which he claimed that Brazil's voting machines were unreliable. And he broadcast this presentation live on public television and social media. He made the same baseless claims throughout the presidential campaign. And he ended up losing the presidential election to the current president, who's a left-winger. He's called Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. He goes by Lula. And this was Brazil's tightest election since the country's return to democracy in 1985. So the big question now on many Brazilians' minds is what happens to the right? In the sense that Mr. Bolsonaro is strongly tied to what Brazil's right is these days. Yeah, I think that's right. There had been a decade of discontent in Brazil in which political scandals led to Brazil's institutions being kind of discredited. And since a leftist government was in power for most of the time, right-wing ideas became particularly popular. And Bolsonaro offered very radical solutions and an anti-elite discourse that appealed to many of these people that were kind of newly coming into politics. Just after his ban was announced, Bolsonaro told journalists, perhaps fairly, that the right wasn't really politically organized before he came on the scene. 
Once he was elected, he did things like spread falsehoods about the COVID pandemic. He attacked the judiciary and the media. And when he lost the presidential election, a mob stormed Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court and presidential palace, much like what happened in the U.S. with the Capitol riot. But whereas Trump is still powerful among the right in the U.S., it's looking like the right wing in Brazil can actually survive without Bolsonaro leading it. Why is that? What's the difference here? There's three reasons why the fallout has been very different for Bolsonaro than it has been for Trump. The first is that Brazil and the U.S. have completely different ways of organizing elections. So in the U.S., it's all done at a very local level. In Brazil, it's a super centralized system. The whole thing is governed by the Supreme Electoral Tribunal that speeds up decision making. And it also makes it harder to appeal because you can only appeal to the Supreme Court. The second reason is that Brazil's constitution actually says that if you abuse your administrative or economic power, you can be made temporarily ineligible for office. And there's a separate law that bars people convicted of crimes by a panel of judges from running for office temporarily as well. The U.S. doesn't have anything similar at a federal level. And the third and final reason is that Brazil has a ton of political parties. Trump can threaten to destabilize the Republican Party by running as an independent. Brazil, meanwhile, has 19 parties in Congress. Bolsonaro himself has belonged to at least nine. So legislators kind of operate much more on the logic of pork than principle. Even some parties that supported Bolsonaro's government have voted in favor of some of Lula's economic initiatives. So then it's fair to say that this does mark the end of Mr. Bolsonaro's political career. So he's not allowed to be on the ballot, but that doesn't mean that his ideas aren't sticking around. A quarter of the electorate call themselves Bolsonaristas. And during Bolsonaro's ascent, politicians representing agribusiness and the gun lobby and evangelical churches really increased their representation in Congress. So, for example, the agribusiness lobby today has 347 out of 594 seats in both houses, up from 280 in 2018. Those interests are going to remain very powerful. And I think Bolsonaro's style of kind of rallying people disaffected with institutions and young people I think anyone who tries to become the standard bearer of the right is going to have to copy some of those tactics. Which can seemingly no longer be Mr. Bolsonaro himself. Well, it might be. Lula himself was in jail before his conviction was overturned, and then he made this crazy comeback and became president. So I think it would be too soon to say Bolsonaro is not going to make a comeback. But it also depends on a lot of other investigations into his activities. So the electoral court is considering another 15 cases of alleged campaign violations, and other courts, including the Supreme Court, are looking into whether he incited the mob in January that attacked government buildings and a host of other allegations, all of which, of course, he denies. The other possibility is that a candidate similar to him could get elected. But what's looking more likely at this point is that other members of the right will inherit his legacy, and they're far more moderate than he was. So who are the more moderate possibilities here? So there's two governors from rich southeastern states that look like they have the best chance of replacing Bolsonaro for now. So one of them is called Tarcisio de Freitas. He's the governor of the state of Sao Paulo. And Tarcisio was a minister under Bolsonaro, but he's not a hardcore Bolsonarista. The other option is Romeo Zema, who is a kind of Thatcherite governor of Minas Gerais. And he comes from a family with a retail empire. But I guess the question is, what do Brazilian voters want from the right? Do they want somebody Bolsonarista or do they want somebody more centrist? That's a really hard question. Remember that Lula only won 
by a tiny margin. And I spoke to an analyst who said to me, Lula only won because of the anti-Bolsonaro vote. Bolsonaro was seen as just a bit too radical for a lot of the electorate. So maybe some of the right is thinking, if we can get someone moderate, we can attract more voters. But how powerful Bolsonaro or Brazil's rights remains also depends a lot on how things go in this current government. If the economy stagnates or there's a huge corruption scandal again, if Lula's government basically struggles significantly in any way, Bolsonaro or someone like him might start to look appealing again. Thanks very much for your time, Anna. Thanks, Jason. tell you a story about a beer rooted in the heart of America. The king of beers has been dethroned. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column on the world of business. It's essentially a cross-border insurrection that's taken place. Modelo, which is a Mexican beer brand, now rules the American beer empire. This is significant. Bud Light spent 22 years on the top. And before Bud Light, there was Budweiser. So this is really a significant coup in the beer industry. And so how is it that Budweiser, Bud Light, has uh, fallen off the top spot? Well, Bud Light found itself in the last place that a product wants to be right now, and that is at the centre of America's cultural wars. It was a rebranding that went completely wrong. Bud Light entered into a marketing relationship with a transgender social media star, Dylan Mulvaney. This month I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. But it just didn't go down well. It bombed. And if you go into a bar and order a Bud Light at the moment, you sort of risk being insulted by someone at the other end of a bar. So it's had a really toxic effect on the brand. Indeed, the singer and rapper Kid Rock even posted a video of himself opening fire on the product. Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch. But Modelo's victory isn't really just a result of Bud Light's missteps. It's also a remarkable business story in its own right. And what is that story? What's, what's the background on Modelo? Mexico's biggest brewery is called Grupo Modelo, and it makes beers like Corona and Modelo. And in 2013, there was a big merger. So AB InBev, which is the Belgium-based drinks conglomerate that owns Budweiser and a whole lot of other beers, it wanted to take full control of Grupo Modelo, the Mexican brewery. The trouble is, is that Modelo's beers, especially Corona, were really powerful competitors to Bud Light north of the border. And this became an antitrust issue. So America's Justice Department, the trust busters forced AB InBev to divest Grupo Modelo. And the sale went to Constellation Brands, which at the time was a relatively little known seller of wines like Robert Mondavi. So Constellation has effectively transformed itself. If you look at Constellation's market value in the decades since it bought these Mexican beers, 
it has risen more than sixfold to $45 billion. So now it is big beer. And this all came to a head in June when in the four weeks up to June the 3rd, sales of Modelo to those drinking at home shot past Bud Light in dollar terms. So how did Constellation, how did Modelo get this far to be such a consumer favorite in America? Well, look, Jason, I'm a bit biased because I've spent a lot of time drinking Mexican beer as a former correspondent in Mexico. And I wouldn't say that Modelo is my favorite. And let's face it, everyone, when they think of Mexican beer, thinks of Corona, right? And yet Modelo has shot past even Corona. And that's because in straightforward business terms, Constellation realized that Modelo was surprisingly the hotter, or I guess we should say the cooler product. And it put its production and marketing weight squarely behind it without cannibalizing Corona's sales. And the reason for that is the backdrop to this story, which is the growing power of the Latino consumer in shaping tastes across America. And it's not just their numbers that are increasing much faster than America's population on average. Their spending power is too. A report by McKinsey recently highlighted that if America's Latinos were a single country, they would have had the third fastest growing economy after China and India during the past decade, that decade when Modelo has come from nowhere to become top of the American Beer League. But it may be the American Beer League is is kind of a fickle business to be in, right? Is this Modelo on top for the foreseeable, do you think? I mean, we have to see what happens with Bud Light's marketing fiasco. It may get over that, and if it gets over that, then it might reclaim the title of King of Beers. But I would venture to guess that Modelo is going to be stronger in the longer term. So I guess by and large, you'd say this is a good news story. It's lamentable to be sure that America's cultural divide has done so much damage to Bud Light's reputation. But I guess you could say it's a consolation that Modelo's success suggests that the cultural divide between America and Mexico is narrowing. Henry, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in with the deal we've got at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.